And if you open up your Bibles, we're continuing our study. We took a break last week. We're continuing our study in Exodus 32. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Second book. So right up, open a couple pages, you'll see Genesis. You're a little too far. First, first book in the Bible. Like open up your first page. Second book in your Bible, and it's chapter 32. Say a couple words, and then we'll, uh, we'll open up in prayer. As, ways, uh, of a, as an announcement, uh, I have been telling some, and I know there's some that are praying, at least for my situation, me and Wincy, um, whom she does exist. Uh, she, <laughs> she probably will be listening to this later, so she'll probably tell... Tell me you embarrassed me in front of everybody, but she does exist. But um, as far as an announcement of what's going on, because I do appreciate those who have prayed for us and are actively praying. Um, where we were, we're moving along in the uh, bringing her over here on the fiance visa, and it's been approved. But right now, it's in the State Department's hands, which it all falls under the State Department, anyways. But um, what they're doing is. They're scheduling the interview in the consulate in Santo Domingo. So once we have that, and I'll be there for that, it's mainly for her. Uh, Lord willing, hopefully she'll be able to come back. So it looks like pretty soon. And I keep telling her that. She's like, oh, you keep saying that, but it keeps being pushed back. But ultimately, it is in the Lord's timing, and we both agree that um, everything that has transpired and the timing of it has been perfectly times, you know, by the Lord's hand. So that's where we're at right now, uh, so very soon, Lord willing. So Exodus 32, hopefully you're opened up to it, and um, we are short on time, but we're going to cut this in half. Hopefully you'll come back tonight, Lord willing, and we'll look at the rest of this. So let's just open up in a, in a word of prayer before we get started here. Our Father, we just thank you for this day. We ask that you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In the Lord Jesus' name do pray. Amen. Okay, so Exodus 32. Last two weeks ago, we were in our lessons, and we were talking about the law being given. Exodus 20 and, and Moses' ascent up the mountain. So here we are picking up in 32. We're real long, and we're going to go through this little short outline here. Now when? We'll just stop right there for a minute. So since we have been taking a break, I think it would be good to find out where we're at. This is very important because what the story we're going to talk about, you may have heard of it. Now when? So the children of Israel are on this journey. They've been rescued, it says, the Bible says, with wondrous works and with a strong arm. The Lord rescued them out of Egypt by plagues by moving uh, the pieces around in Egypt. He has decimated the Egyptian army. You know that from that event, Egypt never recovered, right? They were a world power then. But from that event, God said he, would going, he was going to not only rescue his people, but he was going to judge the Egyptian gods, right? And everything that they worshipped, he gave them more of it. Fine, you want to continue to worship these four-footed animals and and. and and insects and, and amphibians, well, he gave them more, right? He judged the Egyptian gods. He decimated that nation. Um, ultimately, interesting enough, this is just as far as I'll take it on the side note, 
Egypt is mentioned in the end times, right? Egypt will be brought back, and they will own um, the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Very interesting. Egypt is not done either as far as God's plans. But the children of Israel have been called out, right? We've already went through the plagues. There's the institution of the Passover. There's the exodus through the, the wilderness while they're still in Egypt. And I was meaning to have a map, but I forgot uh, so I can show you where they're at. Um, there's also the Red Sea, right? They're coming down. And if you know the Arabian Peninsula where Saudi Arabia is, there's a short distance if you follow along the Mediterranean to uh, the land of Israel. But God specifically says that he did not take them that way because of the Philistines, right? The Philistines were there. He said, lest they saw war, they would be discouraged, right? He took them down through the, the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, which is now present-day Saudi Arabia. And I find that fascinating that, you know, we might think that the way our life should be conducted might be this, or might be A, might be C. And we might think, well, this is the way we need to go. And what we see is, look, that's the shortest distance. Or this is the way to get things done. Whatever it might be, whether it's good or bad, we don't know. But you see, that's the privilege of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, right? One who is outside of the bounds of time, that created time, right? He is outside of it. He is eternal. He knows the future from the beginning, right? Uh, he knows the present the past and the future. He knows it all. It's right before him, and he knew ahead of time where to lead and guide them. It says in other portions that he guided them as a shepherd, right? And we heard this morning, right, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. So thank the Lord that we have a caring God who guides us through this wilderness, right, of life. But in any case, he took them south, right? And so there were some few stops, you know, there's a few um, complaints, and there's some stories there. Um, they're looking for water and things like that. But we come and we stopped at this mountain. The mountain is called Sinai. Moses is called up. There, there's an interaction, right? God offers them, not only did he rescue them, but he offers them a privileged position, a privileged position to be priest to God. Ultimately, what they told God is, you know what, we don't want that. You know, Moses, you go and talk to God, right? They took, they, they didn't want to be that as far as priests, you know, God intended the whole nation to be priests towards God, but they didn't want it, right? Um, but in this covenant relationship that, that relationship that God offered to the nation of Israel, there was God's law, right? And so Moses is invited up this mountain. What was on the mountain? Well, it looked as a consuming fire to them, right? Other portions tell us the fire, uh, the mountain quaked. There was a, 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 a magnificent showing of God coming down, right? I wonder what it would have been like. But in any case, they, they heard the Lord, right? They saw him coming down. They received the, well, Moses went up to receive the law and the instruction. That's what we have from Exodus 20 or so up until this point. Now, Moses ends up coming back down. What he ends up doing, he doesn't go to the people. He just goes to the elders. <clears throat> you can read about this in 24, Exodus 24. We don't won't cover that, but we're skipping over it. He ends up going back down. God says, listen, I want not only, I want to bring other individuals close to me, right, so they can eat and dine with me. He invites them to a feast. 
He invites not only Moses, of course, Moses has been talking to God face to face. It says, God says, as a friend, as a man talks to his friend, but he invites 70 of the elders of Israel. He only, it also invites Aaron, Nanab, and Abihu, these ones that were going to be uh, high priests. Aaron was the high priest, and of course, his sons. But he invites them in close fellowship. It says that they saw the feet of God, right? It was like a clear sapphire underneath his feet. And there they are eating, and God would not, it says God did not stretch out his hand against them. Sinful men in close proximity with God, not only that, you know, we haven't seen him physically, but he's here, right? But he allowed himself to be seen in such a way that they weren't going to be consumed. Sinful men, there they are eating and having fellowship with God. What a, what a, uh, what a thought, right? Well, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't be any closer to God than being in his son, right? Close proximity, fellowship with God. And Moses is asked, in the end of that chapter, he is told, come back up. And this is significant. Moses is asked by God to come back up into the mountains, and Moses was there for 40 days and 40 nights. So there's Moses, and then 24 until 31, Moses is getting more uh, instruction how to build certain articles in the tabernacle, certain rules, and now we come to the end. So, or excuse me, now we come to 32, where we're at now. Now when, so now you know the little bit of the story. Now when the people, so Moses is up there in Sinai. Joshua is not there, but he's somewhere probably up the ascent waiting. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they assembled, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so the subject of today's message is idolatry, right? Here you have something where <clears throat> when the people saw that Moses delayed, right? Idolatry. We're going to talk about a little bit about idolatry. Now, when you think of idolatry, I don't know what your first pops into your mind. I'll tell you what pops into my mind is something like a calf, right? Like we're going to talk about. Maybe a snake or something. You know, something that, some kind of animal, something so hideous or something like that, you know, like, nah, we're too advanced to be bowing down or to be worshiping, you know, things of gold and wood. Well, it still exists today in that sense. But you know what? As advanced as Western culture is, there's still idols in people's lives. Why would John write at the end of his book, this is John uh, 1, and the end of his book, his epistle, he says, little children flee from idols or keep guard about idols. So it's very present, even in the Christian's life, that there's idolatry. Be careful. Guard yourself from it. Flee from it. Right? It is a problem. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, what is an idol? Anything that would rob God, simple explanation, anything that would rob God of his glory anything that would take the place of where God should be. In this particular case, it was a golden, well, my translation puts it as a golden calf, but it's more like a three-year-old uh, bull, something that they would use. So what is the first thing that we see about idolatry? That's our first one through six is the idolatry. Well, a lot of times it's when we don't, when we see that something is not happening according to how we want it to work out. Right? Here's the people waiting. They say, oh, God's delaying with doing this. You know, he's promised to bring us through. Well, let's take matters in our own hands. 
I don't know each person's individual life or where they're at right now, but there's been times that, you know, I had to take matters in my own hands, right? Well, God's delaying in certain issues. Well, I kind of need to move forward instead of waiting for God. And I found out that it's a dead end, right? It's destructive behavior. And this is the first thing that you find out about idolatry is why God did tell them that he was going to be, Moses was going to be gone for 40 days, but it was a short delay, right? There was a purpose for the delay for Moses. And, the, and when they should have sought the Lord, right, with Aaron or her, whoever was left, they instead came then and had this idea, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become with him become of him so one of the things that they wanted was they needed somebody to go before you know this is not the first time well this is the first time I guess in this case Israel repeats this if you know the history of Israel they looked about one time once they were in the land several hundred years later and they said well we want we want a king like the rest of the nations we want a face to go before us to fight our battles we need to see somebody we need somebody present tangible you know, the invisible, eternal, all-powerful God, you know, no, no thanks. You know, we need something more. You know, how much more do you need than God himself? You don't, right? We need somebody to go before us. This Moses, he's gone away. Who knows? You know, maybe he got evaporated. You know, I don't know. This man who brought us up, they even, they even knew that God was the one that brought him out through Moses. Moses brought us out of the land of Egypt. And we don't know what's become of him. So the ignorance of the people and their hastened to move on and not be patient, wait for God, turn them to idolatry. You know, the, the writer in the epistles, of course, <clears throat> a lot of them are written by Paul. But he says this in Galatians. I believe it's Galatians 3.3. 3. It says, You who, who began in the Spirit... How foolish are you to turn back, now I'm paraphrasing a little bit, to turn back to the flesh. Now, those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize that you could not save yourself, right? You needed somebody to save you, and it needed to be divine. You began in the Spirit. How foolish to turn back to the flesh to continue the Christian life. And how foolish was it to these people to turn to some god of gold or something that they could make to bring them through the journey? It was God that began it. How could he, how can, a, how can a, a, a figurine of a cow bring you to the end? It couldn't. But lest we quickly judge them and look down on them, Paul writes that to believers, right? Let me just read it so I'm not butchering it, but it's Galatians talks about turning back. But how are you so foolish, having begun it by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So God is the one that began your salvation. It was something that God began in you. God's going to finish it. So be careful not to look at your own fleshly spirituality, right? The things that I can perform, the things that I can do. I'm going to church. I'm singing the best. Whatever it is, it's the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual. It's not fleshly. Less idolatry arises in your own hearts. Verse 2, it says, And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears uh, of, uh, of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Another thing we learn about idolatry, this word tear, it's very rigid. It's very harsh. I don't know Hebrew that well, but it's, it, it, 
the, the word looks like parquet, but it's P-A-R-A-Q. And it's the idea of tearing. That's the way that it, 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 um, it translates it in English. Idolatry is something that's very destructive nature in itself. Tear off the gold rings from your wives, your ears of your wives and the sons and your daughters. And later, of course, there's the, it's contrast to what God asked them later, right? The people were given um, the gold. They were given jewels, precious stones. Where did they get that? Well, God gave it to them. Remember, he says when they're going to leave the land of Egypt, it wasn't going to be by their own strength, right? A conquering army comes in and destroys the army because they're stronger. They have a better, te- uh, uh, they have a better uh, military uh, strategy, and they come in, they take the crops, they take your, ju- your jewels and your gold and everything and leave. It wasn't like this with the, land of, with the Israelites. They did nothing. God was the one that did it. Well, he says you're going to still get the spoils of the war. What was he going to use that for? Well, he was going to give them that so they can give it back to God later, right? Remember um, back in December, we, had, we were going through a different series. We talked about giving. In particular, it was one of my subjects. But the stuff that God gives you, well, who owns it? Do you? Does 10% go back to God? God owns 100% of it, right? So what is it that God is now requiring? Well, it's all his anyways, right? So here it is. They had an opportunity right now, of course, in Exodus, and it's interesting, the placement of this chapter, but just a few chapters over, God was going, told Moses, raise a contribution amongst the people. Here's the opportunity that they can use this for good. But, of course, he hasn't given that command to them yet. 35, it's, it's, in chapter 35, it's fulfilled. And the word is, of course, there is a word, it's translated take, but it's something voluntarily. It's something where God rewards. It's not so rigid as tear off. But in any case, the gold that they received from the Lord, they turned and used for their own selves. So there's a lesson there, right? The, thing that, the things that God gives us can turn into idols in our own hearts. Wages. Children even. You know, things, whatever it is. Anything that would rob God of his glory. Anything that would take away and remove him from the place that he deserves in our own hearts. So Aaron then takes these gold rings and, and, and this material... And they give it to him, right? Idolatry is very demanding. Anybody that works in, the, in, in this, in, this um, in today's, uh, you know, in the workplace, right? You can see those who are worshipers of work or worshipers of money. You know, it's very demanding on their lives. Now, I understand that sometimes that we have to, right? And there are certain situations, but there's a difference, right? To those who put the, the love of money and the obtaining of, of wealth and, and moving up in the corporate ladder above a place where God is, right? It's very demanding on their life. So verse 4, Aaron takes this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so here's Aaron. This comes into play. We'll talk about this maybe, Lord willing, tonight. But Aaron particularly, right, he did something and he did it with, with strategy, right? It says, he, he, first of all, he melted it down, right? But he took the raw material and he fashioned it with a graving tool. He took careful uh, practice. He put a lot of uh, 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 strategy into this. Um, he thought about it, right? This is not something he just like quickly constructed, right? 
And idolatry a lot of times takes that, right? It's something that's very beautiful. It's something that takes a lot of our own work and something that we're proud about. And I believe that Aaron is ultimately. But look at what the people say about us. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Did they say that in chapter 1? I mean, verse 1? They didn't. They needed somebody to go behind. Now, in their hearts, it's truly revealed, right? Here's the thing that brought you out. You know, how foolish is that? You know, idolatry, when we think about it, how foolish is that? But remember, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idols, right? Idolatry can lead to ruin. But these people attributed something that God himself did. They attributed it to a calf. Something about um, the word, too, I found interesting is why a calf? Well, you know, I think it translates it calf here, but there's also... It's the same word is used in the Hebrew when it talks about Abraham in, in Genesis 15, when God asks him to bring certain animals, but one of them is a three-year-old heifer. And what that means, maybe it doesn't mean too much to us today, right? Because we, we've kind of, unless there's people here that are farmers and that use them for work, well, back then they didn't have tractors, right? They didn't have uh, machines to do the, the labor, right? They needed these animals to do this, right? So an animal was a symbol of power, was a symbol of progress, was a symbol of, of, of wealth, right? It was something that I used every day. And, and Abraham, in that particular case, God asked him to bring a three-year-old heifer, and there's other, there's other animals as well, but the word there is a three-year-old heifer. So here's Aaron, why he craft a, a, a calf. It wasn't something that he did by accident. I think it was to symbolize, well, here's a calf, right? Here's something that's strong. Here's something that we use every day. It's going to help me to remember God. It's going to help me, because look at what it says here. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a, a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this, I said, what? You know, not only were the people involved in idolatry, but now there's this confusion going on, right? Aaron sees this and he starts, you know, I don't know if it particularly this is the case, but he took some pride in it. You know, look at this. Look at the people. They're starting to worship it. Well, you know, maybe I'm not willing to say what they're saying. But you know what? I'm going to use this as an aid to the Lord. It still falls under the umbrella of idolatry. Anything that's added to the worship of God is going to be idolatry. Anything. Even if it's something that we use for good, right? That we say, well, here, I'm going to use this to help me remember or worship God. We have it today, right? It, it, we see it more prevalent in, in, in other sex and, and, and cults and stuff, but we have it today, right? So Aaron says, well, look at what they're doing before this, this, uh, this idol. We're going to make this a feast to the Lord. Now, I find this interesting in this particular um, where 32 is, is because the very next chapter, you know who is the one who is going to conduct their worship? It wasn't going to be an idol. It wasn't going to be Aaron. It was going to be God himself. Because when Moses was going towards the tent, right, the tent of meeting is not where it was where we think about it in the middle of the camp. It was outside of the camp, right? Moses would walk outside, it says, and go and meet with God. And when, God, when he would go in the tent, the people would all come out of their tents, right, and they would look towards it. And when the cloud descended, because uh, Moses would go in, the people would worship so at the direction of God, when he was coming and down, he was represented by that cloud, right? That wasn't who he, he wasn't a cloud, but 
the cloud, he was in the cloud. And when the cloud came down, the people worshiped. So who was directing their worship? It was God himself. But in this particular case, we have a calf, an Aaron, directing the worship. Is that a problem today? People, men, stepping into the way of the Holy Spirit and becoming the role, taking on that role? Worship teams, worship leaders? In any case, lest we fall into that same trap and, and move into a position where we're taking the spot where God, does, where God needs to be. And it says in the New Testament that, that we're to make our spiritual worship is something that's not fleshly. It's God-directed. It's God-honoring. It says this in Ephesians 5, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. Spiritual, something not fleshly. God directs it. God is the one that's orchestrating it, and God's the one that initiates it, right? So in any case, Aaron tries to incorporate these two things together, a pagan uh, idolatry, and he tries to incorporate um, worship to the Lord. Well, let's see where this ends up, right? This is verse 6. So the next day they rose early. They offered up burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. People sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. Now, I've heard this from my cousin. I don't know if it originated from him, but it's a statement that ever, it always stuck for me. But he said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin's going to take you farther than you want to go. And what, there's several parties involved here. But maybe Aaron thought, maybe this is a good reason, right? We can take this thing because the people are giving attention to it. The people are drawing to it. They're bringing it together. Maybe we can use this to worship the Lord. But how quickly, the very next day, we see it says this, eat, drink, and rose up to play. Now, when we come to this word, this phrase, rose up to play, to draw our attention, um, the word is in Hebrew, sekak, or S-A-H-A-Q. I don't know how it's exactly pronounced, but it's the same word if we remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. He wasn't asking, uh, Potiphar's wife, of course, is approaching uh, Joseph and continually uh, coming on to him. She isn't asking him to come play, you know, go play with uh, in a bounce house or something, right? It's something very central, very sexual. And this is exactly what happens here, right? It's sexual behavior, sexual dancing, suggestive um, behavior, whatever it is. It just, it, it lumps it into play. And so much so, it's so grotesque, right? The what happens is, is when idolatry, when God is put off of the throne, right, or he's pulled out of the place that he needs to be in our lives, whatever it is, it's going to descend into something very bad, right? In this particular case, how quickly they got out of control. So they brought offerings to it, peace offerings, burnt offerings. They christened it, right? And in their minds and in their hearts, they said, this is our God, right? This, they weren't playing at this point. They were very serious. But it adds to it, right? If that's your God, if that's your idol, if he doesn't care what you do, he's not involved in your life, he's not looking out for the best of you, well, who cares if you go out and do that, right? Go ahead and live the life as you want, right? That attitude uh, ends up following Israel throughout, even into Judges. It says every man did what was right in his own eyes, right? That's not the way the Christian lives, 
Absolutely not, right? The Christian can live like that, though, right? Those who are in the flesh, living, walking in the flesh is capable of doing any sin. But we are to live orderly, right? Those, the Lord Jesus says this, the identifying mark of a believer, right, is not that they have many crosses or they, they have pictures of Jesus in their, in their household, right? It's if they love the brother, right? They do his commandments. That's how they're going to know that you're a believer. And so this is significant, right? This behavior is significant because it brings, it says in particular, Moses says it brought shame upon themselves, right? Not just upon themselves, but as derision among their enemies. Can you imagine the people of God acting like this among their enemies? Moses was specific saying this, right? The Canaanites, those who were in the land, they were watching what they were doing. These were supposed to be people that were called out into a privileged position, and here they are, eating, drinking, and waking up just to play, right? Just to get up to any kind of activity I'm going to do, it's going to be something that is sensual, something that is sexual, something that is what my heart wants, the flesh wants. In any case, the Lord says it best in 7. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for the people of whom you brought out from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So the corruption was very quick, right? And so Lord, the Lord alerts Moses. Now this, this shifts a little bit in the way that we think. We'll wrap up pretty soon here. But, you know, now the Lord is now, not only is he passing out the verdict of what he feels about idolatry, right? There's Moses up in the mountain, right? The people are doing this below. He says that they've corrupted themselves. Look at verse 8. How quickly they've turned aside from which I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's repeating the very words that they're saying below. You know, one of the things that um, I was talking with... um, a friend, I'll just say, recently, and he has his belief. I don't know if you've come across those in talking with um, unbelievers, but he believes, well, when you die, you just disappear. That's it. You know, nothing else happens. There's no heaven. There's no hell. And, you know, I started asking questions. You know, I don't know if we even truly believe that in our own hearts. As we look at the things around us, as we look at the the Adam Lanzas and the people that go into schools and blow away children and in the end just kill themselves. Is that just? How can they get away with it? What about we take into the highest degree Hitler murdering six million people, whatever it is, astronomical figures of people, human lives, no regard for humanity. And in the end he just kills himself and that's justice? I don't think so. And with God, he doesn't let anything pass by. You know, it's really a sobering thought. When we, when we think about in the end, where God opens the books, right, those who are unbelievers are going to go to the great white throne. They're going to be judged out of every single thing they ever did in their life. You can end your life quickly, that's fine, but you're on your way to go meet your creator, right? And so it's a great comfort to the believer, too, as well, right, to think about the, the evil in this world, that God is not going to let it go unpunished. He takes note, as he did here. He quickly right? As minute had happened, right? He tells Moses, get down there. Now he's doing this for another reason. Get down there. They're corrupting themselves. He says this in verse 9. It says, I've seen this people, and behold, they're obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I'll make of you a great nation. 
He wanted to wipe them out, destroy them. Now you say, you might scratch your head, well, didn't he promise Abraham that he would bring his children into this land and give it to them? Well, he says that he'll make of, a, of Moses a great nation. Moses was a child of Abraham. So he was going to continue his, you know, he was going to fulfill the promise. And I have to think that God was serious at this point, right? And the lesson for us is, or the, the, the idea is that God takes sin seriously. Idolatry in this particular case, he takes it seriously, and he takes note of it. The word obstinate, you'll see this often, in, even in the New Testament. Stephen calls the people of those days, calls them stiff-necked. What that means is, is of course, this, you know, we're not, um, I don't know if anybody has any farming experience again. Going back to that, it would mean something to them. But they would use these, these, uh, these animals to plow, right? But you would need some way of controlling them, right, to steer them in the direction that they would want to go in, that you want them to go. But those who don't go in the direction that you want, they straighten their neck, right, so they're not looking back or to the left where you're pulling them, right? That's the idea, stiff-necked. God's trying to bring them back this way and trying to, you know, warn them of the destruction of idolatry and not go your own way, right? He's trying to lead them, and they're stiff-necked. They're like, no, I want to continue to go this way. You know, believers can be like that too, right? God, God's trying to pull you back to himself, and you can stiffen your neck so hard that, you know, you don't want to hear anything else. Continue going down your path, right? Paul says that there are those in a, in a particular meeting that have fallen asleep, right, prematurely, because they were just stiff in their neck, right? They did, had nothing. They didn't want to be corrected, and they didn't want to be directed by God. You know, the Christian life is, I don't know if they have told you this when you got saved. Of course, they didn't tell me, you know, but it's, it's, diffi it's difficult, right? There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of hardships, but it's God directing, right? He directs through these hardships. He directs through correction. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And if you're not experiencing any chastening in your life, you know, you might want to ask and, and talk to your own heart, right? Am I in the faith? Because that's what it is. The Christian life is God directing. He's moving me towards the person of Christ. He's, he's molding me into this, right? So don't be stiff-necked. Don't be an obstinate people. You know, but there's also Moses, too, as we, just a few thoughts about Moses. You know, there was another person, too, earlier since we were talking about Abraham. He was given a promise in Genesis about his son, right, that God visited him, right? There's three individuals that come. God talks to him. But at the end of that conversation, Abraham was privileged because he was a friend of God. God let him into what he was about to do, right? He was about to destroy these two cities. Why did God even bother talking with him? Well, God wanted Abraham to be involved, right? Now, I find that fascinating that the, a God as powerful as he is and has created everything, that he would share in some way with mankind, you know, the rule and, the, and, and just getting involved in people's lives, right? He wanted Abraham to, right, to intercede for them. He said, listen, what, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And since he was going to be a great people. But here he is, he could have said nothing to Moses. He says, Moses, go down at once. This is what's happening down there. You don't know what's happening. Well, it turns Moses to start entreating on the Lord. And maybe we'll just stop with this section. Stop with Moses' prayer. We'll look at the application tonight. So God, right, there's something going on below. Moses entreated the Lord and says this, verse 11. 
O Lord, why dost thy anger burn against thy people, from whom thou broughtest up in the land of Egypt with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them from the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn now from their burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to thy people. Right? Moses entreats the Lord, right? He sees that the Lord's ready to do this. He, I mean, it reveals Moses' heart for these, these people, right? Moses was not a perfect man, right? But it says in, in Hebrews that he was faithful among his house. He was the one that was going to represent um, to God them, right? There's an important lesson here to us too, right? While the sin was happening below, and God in heavens wants to judge, uh, judge and wants to dull out justice, there needs to be somebody that goes in between, right? Who would that remind you of? The Lord Jesus, right? There needs to be somebody to intercede for you. There needs to be somebody to intercede on my behalf, right? The Lord Jesus says this, that he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me, right? His intercession does not stop. He's able to save to the, forever because of this, because his intercession does not stop. And so God needed somebody to go between the people and him, right? His justice was not just going to be swept aside, right? Some people like that. They want to attribute that to God. Well, God is a God of love, right? And he is. Well, what is he going to do about the sin? Ah, he's not going to care about that. He's just going to sweep it out, right? He's not going to care. Well, he, God can't work like that, right? God is a, a righteous God. He's a God of justice. It needs to be fulfilled. But here's Moses interceding, and he says this. He literally says, Lord, why is your anger burned? The people whom thou brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. It was your grace that brought us out. That's what he's saying. It's your grace that brought us out. He said, listen, if you want to stop being gracious to us, that's fine, but it's your grace that brought us out. We didn't, it wasn't our own power that brought us out of there. It's, this has all been of you, God. Why should the Egyptians speak and say with evil intent he brought them out and killed them in the mountains and destroyed them from the face of the earth? You know, maybe a God is, you know, we heard about last week of a particular religion that their God, he changes his mind a lot. And he tricks things, right? You don't know exactly what he's about to do. I mean, maybe the man who instituted that religion, you know, wanted to excuse his behavior. That might be the case. But their God, he changes his mind whatever he wants. Well, God, if you believe that, right, the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? He didn't bring them out just to kill them in the mountains, right? He wasn't going to trick them. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt so I can kill you out in the mountains for my own sport and pleasure. No, he was going to bring them to the land of the, uh, the land that he promised them, that he promised to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob. Turn from your burning anger. You know, he's interceding for their behalf. Remember, he says in 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou promised to multiply the descendants as the stars of heaven. All this land which I have spoken to give to your descendants, they will inherit it forever. Right? God, he reminds God. Did God need reminding? Of course not. Did Moses need reminding? Yes. Did Moses need to learn that there needed to be somebody to intercede for the people and for himself too? Absolutely, right? It says in 14, the Lord changed his mind about doing harm, what he said to, that he would do to his people. Now, say a few words about this, because I think this comes up, you know, in our own hearts, in our own minds. We, we grapple and we wrestle with this. How can God change his mind? It says it particularly right here. I would just say this, is that when we're explaining the divine character, we don't know anything else beside what God would reveal, right? Who would know anything about God except God himself? Who can describe him? 
And so when it comes to describing certain characteristics of God, we can only talk about it from our own perspective. Well, God allowed that to be written because that's the way we understand, right? So if a God's eternal and everything is before him, there is no, well, he was this one time and now he's this this time. He's always existed and he always was that. But in certain times in our history, right, we know him as doing certain things, right? So at this point, he wanted to do something, right? But now Moses uh, writes that he changed his mind. He no longer wanted to, right? Well, what is it trying to say? Because of the intercessory work, right? It says this of, the, of God. He says that he passed over the sins previously committed. Why? Because he would look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ coming and interceding on the whole world's behalf, right? He would take upon him the sin of the whole world, as we heard this morning. He who knew no sin became sin for them, right? So the Lord ends up not doing what he said he would do, but Moses turned and went down. Actually, this is our next one. I'm going to stop with this one. If you can advance it, please. Moses is down. Um, he's entreating on, uh, for the Lord. He's interceding for, for the people. And then Moses turns his attention and goes down. And it says here, we'll stop with this, that Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of uh, testimony in his hand, tablets which are written on both sides. They're written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. So goes to great lengths to describe what was in Moses' hand, right? Down below was, was uh, chaos, right? Was practically what we would know today as an orgy, right? What was happening below, right? People doing what they wanted, right? Out of control behavior, sinful pleasures. What Moses was coming down with was direction, God's word, right? Writing, it was God's work. It wasn't something that Moses created. It wasn't Moses' law. It was God's law, right? The tablets were God's work, writing. It was God write, God's writing engraved on the tablets. And so if we're ever going to get any direction in our Christian life, if we're going to get any um, know what to do in our particular in what particular case, it's not going to be something that's going to be left up to our own design, right? It's not going to be something that we're going to hatch out of our own mind and think, well, this is the way to do things, right? When we're looking for direction, when we're looking for what to do, well, we've got to go to God's work, God's writing. Well, here it is right here before you if you have one, right? It's the Word of God. The Word of God, it says, it says that the Lord Jesus is called the Word, right? God's expression he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt, right, in the Lord Jesus, right? God, if we want to know what God would do in a certain situation, we can look at the Lord Jesus and read. God has spoken in various times in the Old Testament, right? Dreams, visions, through angels. But he has spoken everything he's ever going to say in his son, right? That's the last revelation. There's no more revelations after that. And what does it say to us? Well, that God is a God of love. He's a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice and righteousness, right? Sin needs to be punished. And if you don't have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't claim him as your own savior, you're going to face the wrath that he was going to pour out on those people. He's going to pour out on you later, right? So the invitation stands today. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? Idolatry can lead to destruction, right? Praise the Lord that he has offered up his son. He delivered him up. But now he's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and he's our intercessor. He's our great high priest.
So tonight what we'll do is we'll just look at a little bit of the application. I didn't get into any of it that much, so we'll look at that. And um, 